So we are finishing, this is our third of our three-week series on paradox, truth in tension. Awesome. That was Conda's idea, as you can imagine, because he's so good at these things. Two weeks ago, Kondo talked about uh, a topic that is, could not be more relevant to where we are as a, as a culture, as a society today. He talked about how common it is for how polarized we are in our culture. That's for sure. And so often people will believe what they believe so strongly that not only are they all in with their area, the other person on the other side is, is their enemy. So you're either for or you're anti-against something. And his two truths in tension were hatred and tolerance. If you didn't get to hear the message, it's online. Just go to our website. Some of you remember that he, he beautifully uh, shared with us that John 8 passage about the woman caught in adultery. And our perfect role model in every way, Jesus Christ, the God-man, reminded us that it's all about grace and truth when he said to that woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He's full of grace. He forgives. He loves. But he has also called us to a life of righteousness and godliness. Amen? He really has. Last week, Kondo tackled that simple topic of free will and sovereign choice. Some of you, it's not a simple topic, believe me. And he did a masterful job. He really did. And he talked about how, uh, how God has created us to make choices. We are not robots. He's created us to make choices. On the other hand, our God is all-knowing, omniscient. That's kind of the big theological term. God is sovereign. God has a plan. He is working at his plan. God is the author of all human history, past, present, and future. How do those two work together, especially when it comes to a person coming to know Christ? I, again, encourage you, if you didn't get to hear that last week, to, um, to go on our website and make sure that you hear that. It was really, really helpful and, and excellent. So here's my topic. My topic is the two truths intentioned are prayer and planning. Okay? Prayer and planning. Is it all up to God or is it all up to me? Or is it a combination of both? So that's what we'll be talking about today. So I want you to envision, as we kind of get started here, I want you to envision somebody comes up to you, somebody who really respects you. They tell you that I really respect you. And here's what I'm going through. I have a potentially life-altering decision that I need to make. It may be one of the top two or three most important decisions of my life. And I want to get it right. I desperately need to get it right. And so you listen, you say, wow, thank you. I feel honored that you, you want my input. So what have you done so far as you're thinking about making this decision? Well, I'm really into research. So I've done a lot of study and a lot of research. I've been on Google constantly, you know, Wikipedia, you know, all the great research tools made available to each one of us. I've weighed all the pros and cons. You're the 23rd person I've asked an opinion of. And I just got all kinds of good data. I think I'm pretty much close to ready to go. 
And you're like, wow, that is so impressive. So how have you specifically been praying about this issue would be a question that I would probably ask. Silence. Well, they may say something to me like this. Well, here's how, how that works for me. Okay, I do my part. I set it before God and say, God, would you bless this? And that's God's part. God's part is to bless my plan. And I'm like, eh, that's not so good. I don't really like that. But have any of you behaved that way? Have any of you done it that way? Yeah. As, as somebody who's a planner, and I am, I have been guilty for sure of that. Well, let's say somebody else comes up to you, and they just happen to be in the exact same situation, ask you the exact same question. You know, I'm coming to you. I so respect you. I respect your opinion. I expect your walk with Christ. And I have this life-altering, potentially, decision that I need to make. And I really want your input. And so, so you say, so tell me what you've kind of done to date about making this decision. I'm a prayer. In fact, I have devoted one hour each morning for the last month to pray. There have been numerous days that I have, I have even fasted throughout an entire day. I'm really seeking God for this. In fact, throughout the day, because this is so heavy on my heart, this is so important, that somewhere between 15 and 20 times, I would imagine, I just shoot up prayers to God and say, God, give me wisdom. God, give me help. God, give me direction. And I hear that, and I am very challenged by that. And I say, that is amazing. So regarding this decision, I may then say, what are some specific action steps that you've put together to make this decision and do your due diligence to really make a good, thoughtful decision, too? Silence. They say, well, you know, my, the, way, the way I pray, the way I think about prayer is God's just going to give it to me. You know, because I'm praying with all my heart, because I have, I have really great faith. You know, God gave me this great faith, and I'm trusting God. And I am convinced that he is just going to tell me. It may not be audible, but it's almost as good as an audible voice from God. And I'm like, well, hmm, I don't know that that's the complete picture of how we make decisions in life. Do you think it's a combination? Does that make sense? It does to me. Are we to pray and pray and continually pray about the big decisions of life? Maybe even cry out to God. Maybe even fast. Yes. Are we supposed to use our minds? Are we supposed to use the resources at our, at our disposal? Disposal to be able to collect good data before we make a really important decision? I think so, yes. Is there anybody in Scripture who did that really well? Yes. His name's Nehemiah. Nehemiah. You have your Bible? You want to turn to the book of Nehemiah with me? Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Nehemiah. And all these verses will be up on the screen uh, if you want to follow along that way. Place for notes if you like to... Jot down notes as well. So we're going to see in the life of Nehemiah a, a beautiful, I believe, balance of praying and planning and how God blessed that in an amazing way through him. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pick up in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 1. 
The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in ancient Persia, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah wept and he fasted and he mourned and he prayed because his heart was broken. Now, some of you know your, that know your Bibles, you've, you're kind of Bible students, and maybe especially you enjoy the Old Testament and some of the history of the Old Testament, may know that Israel came to the point where they had so tested God's patience after idolatry, after idolatry, after idolatry, that God finally said, enough, you are going to be taken captive into exile in Babylon. And God even told them that this was going to be a 70-year captivity, that they would be taken from the land of Jerusalem, the region of Judah, and taken to Babylon. Now, the writing of Nehemiah, 445 B.C., was literally in about the 69th year at the very tail end of these 70 years. So some people will say, why is he upset? I mean, the... The, the city of Jerusalem, the fortress walls, all of those things had been destroyed 69, 70 years prior. Why was he so upset? Well, some years, not in the too distant past from the writing of the book Nehemiah, several remnant, they were called a remnant of Jews, were permitted to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the city and start rebuilding the fortress walls. It was a time of great hopefulness for the people of Israel who were back in Babylon. It's like, oh, our city is being rebuilt, restored. The walls are being rebuilt. And they were excited and they were hopeful. In fact, the king, we're going to be introduced to him in a little bit, the king of Persia who gave the command, the commission to rebuild Jerusalem was King Artaxerxes the king of Persia. So obviously he had been involved in that, but it wasn't too long after the reconstruction had begun and the wall was being reconstructed as well that the enemies and the Israelites had many, many enemies. The enemies in that same region, it's called the Trans-Euphrates region. The enemies surrounding people hated the Jews And so they sent word to King Artaxerxes and said, you need to know about these people. These people are a a horrible people and a terrible people. And they have another God than the gods that we served and convinced Artaxerxes to put a halt to the reconstruction of the city and of the wall. 
And that happened. And then the wall in the city that was being rebuilt was pillaged and burned. That's the news that so upset Nehemiah. That's the news that broke his heart. Now, some of us might say, I mean, some of you maybe have been victimized by arson. I shared with you last fall when I shared a message that the church that I pastored that was only 16 months old, the building was a victim of arsonists. Some of you maybe have had homes that were burned or places of employment that experienced tragic fire. It's a terrible thing. It feels very, very violating. But Nehemiah is not deeply distraught simply because the buildings and the wall was destroyed. If you look over in chapter 2 of Nehemiah and look at verse 17, here's the real reason. Here's what broke Nehemiah's heart. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then I, this is Nehemiah speaking, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. You want to know what broke Nehemiah's heart? The fact that God had referred to his people as his chosen people, right? Not because the Israelites were bigger or better or stronger or smarter. None of that. But God in his infinite grace, beginning with Abraham, chose him to be the father of an entire multitude, an entire group of people, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, who would be his people. They would be those who were the shining light on a lampstand who would show and demonstrate and model before the rest of the pagan world. Here's what happens when you serve Jehovah. And instead of that being the case, they were a disgrace. Such a disgrace that they had been ripped from their own city and their own land and transported to Babylon. Apparently, Nehemiah was, was hopeful Because that remnant had gone back and they were beginning to reconstruct the city and the walls. And then once again, his hopes were completely dashed and destroyed. And it broke his heart. You see, what Nehemiah was most passionate about was not a completed city and fortress wall. It was the glory of God. It was the honor of God. It was the name of God. And he said, this city burned rubble is a testimony to our disgrace and it broke his heart. And so that's why he wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. You know, the very, the very logical question as I read this as a follower of Christ and for you as well is what's breaking my heart that breaks God's heart. What's breaking my heart that breaks God's heart? Because here's what happens, and some of you have experienced this. Some of you have had an opportunity to go places where you see people and you're with people whose lives have been ravaged by sin, by poverty, by abuse, and it breaks your heart 
And that's a really good thing. Because there are a few things, my brothers and sisters, that are more motivating than to have your heart broken for something that breaks God's heart. Isn't that right? It's really right. And yet most of us, the vast majority of us, kind of insulate our lives, don't we? Kind of make sure life's really quite comfortable. And we can shed a tear when we hear about or see on TV or hear somebody speak about a people group that are just suffering horribly. And yet we don't let it break our hearts to motivate us to action and to do something. That's what was going on with Nehemiah. Let's go back to verse 5 because here's what Nehemiah does. Yeah, he's weeping, mourning, fasting, and praying. And we get one of the most beautiful things that occasionally happens in Scripture. We get an inside view of how he talks to God. How Nehemiah prays with his heart broken for his people and for the name of God. Verse 5, Nehemiah 1, verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant who is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants. They are your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer of the king. This prayer is amazing. This prayer is one of the most beautiful theologies of prayer that we can find in Scripture. I want to strongly encourage you, one of the best studies you'll ever do of Scripture is to study the prayers in Scripture both Old and New Testament. And as I read this, I thought, Lord, give me this attitude in prayer. May these elements in this kind of prayer teach me and inform me how to pray. And so I want to give you five, just hopefully this is just simple and practical, five prayer attitudes that we see in Nehemiah that for me are super helpful. First one is humility, humility. He begins, he says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. You know, sometimes we think humility is just talking about how rotten we are. 
Biblical humility is really about focusing on how great God is and where I am in comparison to him. I mean, I'm created in his image. You're created in his image. We are loved. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And yet he is above all. We are the creatures fallen. And so humility is often recognizing in your prayer his greatness, his majesty, his power. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. That's a great example to us. You know, when Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Remember how he started? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. There's this beautiful model in scripture of when we're going to address the God of the universe, let's remind ourselves and even say to him who he is. And that puts us in a posture of humility. And that's where we need to be. Humility is number one. Number two, let me give you a second one that we see in Nehemiah's prayer. And that is repentance. Repentance. Listen to what he says in verse 7. He says, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, the laws. You gave your servant Moses. You know, it's just, it's so interesting to me. And, and you heard as I read the prayer a little bit ago that he says, my family has sinned against you. Lord, even I have sinned against you. Now, most scholars do not believe Nehemiah was more than 70 years old. He was a much younger man than that. So Nehemiah, good reason to believe that he was born in Babylon. He had never even been to Jerusalem. And it was the sins of his forefathers that had caused God to say, enough is enough, you're being exiled to Babylon. And yet you see in his humility and his repentance how he so identifies with his forefathers and his sin. He knows his own heart. And he repents, and there's kind of this almost, these are my people, and I share in their sinfulness. Humility, repentance. The third one is submission. We see submission in Nehemiah. He says, oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Lord, we're we're your servants. We're your servants. We submit to you. Lord, I'm going to tell you what I cry out for, what I want, what I desire, but ultimately we submit to you. Thy will be done. You obviously know I work at Grace, so I'm going to quote one of my wonderful colleagues Year, many years of friendship by the name of Dr. Roger Pugh. Some of you know him. Some of you took his prayer class, life-changing class. One of my favorite quotes from Dr. Pugh is this. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. That is awesome. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. Isn't that so good? So, Jeff, are you saying, and I am, and I'm just as convicted as any of you are, that 
how I pray, the amount of time I pray, pray, the sincerity of my prayer is a reflection on whether or not I think I need him or not. Yeah. Yeah. Is it one of the main reasons why we just can go days and even longer than days without really talking to God besides bless this food? Amen. Because I'm supposed to pray for my food, I guess. Mom and dad taught me that. I mean, sincere heart wrenching cry out to God prayer is because we really kind of have a, a call you when I need you. And we forget we need him every moment. Isn't that right? That's our problem. That's my problem. I'll point my finger at me. Our incredible declaration of independence that we can do it ourselves. And we will never experience the incredible power of God when that's our approach. We won't. Okay? Submission number three. Let me give you number four. And that is hope. Hope. Nehemiah says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful... I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name, Jerusalem. There's hope. Basically what Nehemiah is doing, he's not verbatim quoting word for word, but he's summarizing God's promise to his people in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 5. God says to his people, this is not long before Moses, you know, dies. He says, I will judge you. I will judge you in a severe way. If you follow after other gods and idols and do not obey me. But you need to know that if you sincerely turn and repent and come back to me, I will embrace you. Because you are my beloved, I will embrace you. And so there is hope. We aren't hopeless. Over the years, I've talked to people who have really blown it, made some horribly sinful decisions and really hurt people around them. And I'm so grateful that I can say by the authority of God's word, there is always hope in Jesus, right? He forgives. He restores. He is the father of the prodigal son. And the prodigal daughter. And that's us. And then, and then the fifth one is confidence. It's the word confidence. I love this because Nehemiah says at the end of his prayer. I mean, it's almost like you go from this incredible humility before a great God. And then he says, but remember, God, you're a God who promises and you always fulfill your promises. So I'm asking you right now to do it. I am asking you to do it. Confidence is not arrogance. Confidence is not cockiness. Confidence is not pride. It's saying, God, here's who you are. Here's what we need. Do it. God, we're asking you to do it. I believe that I am lining up with your heart and your desire when I take your promise and say, God, do it through your people, through us. And we need to pray more like that, my brothers and sisters. We really do. Look at what he says. This is so fascinating. He says, give your, verse 11, give your servant success today. Today. Lord, I'm asking you to do this today. Well, that feels bold. But you know what today was? It's what I'm going to read to you in just a moment in chapter 2. 
verse 1, as he's in the presence of King Artaxerxes. So let's go ahead and, and look there as we continue. Nehemiah 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Cupbearer of the king. To some of us, that sounds like, really? Who would want that job? I mean, you know what your job is? You drink the, the, the wine to see whether or not it's poison before you hand it to the king. Anybody want that job? But there was something about that job that had some incredible perks. And that is, as, as you read about this culturally, what happened back in this uh, you know, ancient era is cupbearers became very, very important people. Because they were the confidant of the king. They had a real inside relationship with the king. And therefore, in light of that, they often were very, very influential. And the very reason that Artaxerxes looks at Nehemiah, and Nehemiah must have always been a happy guy, smiley guy, just, you know, bubbly personality. Maybe not. But he notices. He notices his face. I guess when you've been weeping... Morning, fasting, praying, your face looks like that. I don't know. But obviously he was living with incredible burden in his heart for what had happened to his people. And the king noticed. Do you see why he says, I, am, I was very much afraid? Two reasons. Let me give you both of those. Number one is, in that culture, you were never sad in the presence of the king. Don't put on the sad face in the presence of the king. Why not? Because the king, if for whatever reason he didn't like your fad, sad face, you could be executed on the spot. That much power that kings had. But there's an, a second one, I, I think an even deeper one that probably was going on when Nehemiah says, I am so afraid. Remember, and I mentioned this earlier, remember who the king was who initially said, you can go rebuild the wall in the city and then shut it down because he had been convinced that by the enemies of the Israelites that they shouldn't do this. They're a, they're a wicked people. They're a bad people. And he stopped it. This is the king that Nehemiah, that Nehemiah is now asking to let him go and rebuild the wall. This sounds, sounds a little scary, right? It's like, why in the world would this guy say yes when he shut it down? But look at what happened. God opened the door. What is it that you want from me? Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 5. I want to continue reading. Verse 5 says, And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king 
with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall for the residence I will occupy? Incredible phrase. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. <laughs> um, Nehemiah was ready. Nehemiah was ready. One thing I didn't mention to you, I should mention to you, is the period of time between Nehemiah 1.4, when Nehemiah got the news about the destruction of the city and the wall, and he wept, mourned, fasted, and prayed, and this day, this encounter with the king, four months. Four months. Why is that significant? Well, Nehemiah probably, absolutely, continued to mourn and fast and pray and weep. But he was doing something else. He was planning. He was preparing. How do I know that? Because when the door of opportunity opened and the king said, what do you need? He pulls out his to-do list. He pulls out his checklist. He goes, I'm glad you asked because I know exactly what I need. That's so awesome. I want to give you a couple principles about planning, okay, that we see Nehemiah is a great example. Here's my first one. Planning anticipates opportunity. That's important. That's a really good biblical principle. Planning anticipates opportunity. In other words, I'm ready. God, when you're ready, I'm ready. God, when you say, now, I'm ready. I'm ready. And you say, Jeff, how in the world do you do that? Well, if it's some big decision, something you've been praying about, some opportunity, and say, God, open the door, open the door, give me opportunity, open the door, and he goes, boom, be ready. What if Nehemiah would have said, I actually had given no thought to what I want you to do. I hadn't even thought about that. You know, isn't that maybe what happens to us? We crowd to God. We ask God to do things. And then three days later, he's like, here you go. And we're like, wait, 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 wait. I wasn't that serious. You know, Wait. No, God, it's so incredible how he does this, isn't it? That sometimes you're praying and you're trusting him and you're walking with him. And then all of a sudden, boom, the door just swings wide open. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to trust him? But have you done your homework? Have you done your due diligence? Nehemiah clearly had thought through what he needed if the king said yes. I think that's amazing. I think that's a great role model, isn't it? He was ready, and you and I need to be ready. Let me give you a second thought, and that is that planning addresses obstacles. Planning addresses obstacles. It not only anticipates opportunity, it addresses obstacles. 
What are some things I need to be thinking about? What are some things I need to be prepared for? If we had time, we don't, but if we had time to, to read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, we would see that it was constant opposition. I mean, this first, these first two chapters is like, oh, this is so great. God has made this pretty easy for him, on and on. No, it was battle after battle after, you know, the surrounding uh, nations just wanted to take them down and take them out. So here's the deal. Planning addresses obstacles. We're going to be honest about what the incredible challenges are to obey God in this area. You know, I, I have many, many friends who serve on the mission field, who serve Christ in, in difficult places. And I'm so grateful because you can, you can be really naive about ministry that's super hard, and it will just blindside you and wipe you out. Or you can say, we're going to count the cost. We're going to understand that it is going to be really tough. We're going to be honest. We're going to identify the obstacles and pray specifically and do our part in addressing those. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think it's great wisdom as well. So let me tell you two things that Nehemiah did. Excuse me, two things that Artaxerxes did that Nehemiah didn't even ask for. Did you see that last phrase that I read? And he sent, he sent his armies. He sent his secret service unit with him. That's exactly what he did. It's like, okay, I want to make sure you're fine, you and your, your friends who are going. So we're going to have guards escort you all the way back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's like, really? Yeah. Oh, and Nehemiah, there's a second thing, and we don't read this until we look at chapter 5, verse 14. Nehemiah, there's a second thing, and that is you now have the title of governor of Judah. He was given the title governor as he went back. Why? Because he needed that status in the mind of Artaxerxes. He needed that authority to get it done. And, you know, I read that and I say, our God does exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. You know, we can think our planning is so great and God goes, that's fine. Boom. I want to give you something extra. I want to give you over and above even what you're asking for. And he blows our mind. Any of you ever experienced that? Oh, my gosh, I have. It's like, you are amazing. You are so amazing. And he certainly was for Nehemiah. Do you see again that phrase? appears twice. I've read it twice. The gracious hand of my God was on me. I love the humility of Nehemiah. You don't see an ounce of pride or arrogance in Nehemiah. You see a humble servant who trusted a great God, who clinged to the promises of God, and confidently said, God, my heart is so broken because you are being so dishonored, and I believe this is the time and this is in the moment to do something. And I'm here, and I'm ready. I love that. Look at verse 17 again in chapter 2. He says, then I said to them, and this is after he had gone to the city for three days. He circled the city. He assessed the situation. And then in verse 17, he said, 17, he says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Look at 18. 
I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. (laughs) And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. He rallied the troops. He convinced them. I think his greatest convincing was the fact that he was there and he had all the supplies. How'd this happen? Artaxerxes gave it all to us. But here's what's going on, my brethren. God's hand is on this. God's favor is on this. It is so clear and so obvious that this is of God. And we need to be a part of it. I love that. That is my heart's desire. I want to be something. I want to be a part of something God's doing in a great way. Don't you? I hope you do. I hope you do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on out, guys, if you want to come out. Because I want to, I want to wrap up by talking about God's hand and God's favor with you. Because this is so important. I've heard it referred to as God's anointing. Do you pray for God's anointing in your life or in the life of our church? The good hand of God, the gracious hand of God, that the spirit of God would would rule and reign. If you're like me, many of you probably are, is you're so used to kind of taking control and making the plan yourself and maybe tacking on a prayer because I guess you're supposed to pray about this too. But Nehemiah is saying none of this would have happened without the gracious hand of my God on this. And and that's one of the main things, if not the main thing, probably is the main thing that I pray for Mission Point Community Church is God's favor, God's hand, God's anointing. Because I guarantee you, and Conda would say this, as would all the staff, we're not smart enough to figure this thing out. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. But if we have the hand and the anointing of God on our church, God does unbelievable things. I I have a, a lot of friends who pastor big churches. I've just had a chance to meet a lot of pastors. And some of those pastors... Again, not being negative, but some of those pastors write all the how-to books, how to do church, how to build a big church, that kind of thing. I've had friends who have churches that are huge, and I would say to them, what are your steps? And they're like, I don't know. (laughs) We prayed a lot. I think for some reason, God in his grace just chose to put his hand on our ministry, and we just went along with with the wave we rode the wave of the anointing of God of the hand of God and that's so beautiful when we can't explain it because God is so in it and God is the one who did it that's so beautiful don't you want to be a part of that I so want to be a part of that Nehemiah got to be a part of it And because of Nehemiah, the entire city and the fortress wall was rebuilt and his people got to reoccupy God's promised land in Jerusalem. So so two challenges as I wrap up. Number one, have you asked the Lord to break your heart 
for what breaks his. You say, that feels so unbelievably uncomfortable just hearing you say that, Jeff. It is. Broken hearts, you know, having, having your heart broken about something you were so deeply moved and grieved is not a fun, enjoyable experience. But often it can change the very direction and trajectory of our lives in a good way. It can. And how about praying that God's gracious hand would be on your life, on the lives of your family, on the lives of our people in our church, in this community? How about even on believers in our nation who need to, starting with us, reflect the glory of a life well lived for Jesus? We're going to sing in just a moment. I'll pray. We'll sing. And our our. Uh, our practice here at Mission Point is at the tail end of of the song, uh, last verse. If you want to slip on down the aisle, come forward. We'll have some of our elders here, some of our missional community leaders here to pray for you. Maybe, you know, sometimes just saying, I want to ask God to do a work in my heart and to help me to be burdened and broken for what breaks his and have somebody pray with you about that. Or, I just, I want to be so much more sensitive to the spirit, to the Holy Spirit in my life. I want to listen to him. I want to yield my life to him. I need to repent of some issues in my life. The people who come are loving people. They're safe people and they love you. So if that's something the Lord is prompting you to do, you come. Okay, Father, thanks for this incredible example of a man of God who, who has taught us a great deal this morning. But ultimately, he would say, it's Jehovah, it's God, it's his hand. That's what makes the difference. May that be true of us, Father, of our families, of our church, of our community, even of your church in our nation. God, would you bring revival starting with us? And may your spirit just move in ways that we can't even begin to explain, but it's so obvious of you that you receive the greatest glory. Father, that's our heart's cry. Do it and help us to submit and be part of it. For your glory, we pray. Amen.